Well, hey, First Church, how we doing? Everybody excited to be here? Hey, we got a ton of people worshiping with us online. It looks like we have a packed house here today, and it's not even Easter Sunday yet, so it's great. Good to see you guys coming back in person, but we also want to welcome in our online family. So excited to have you guys as well. So if you're here in person, would you welcome in our online family? Let them know we're glad that they are worshiping with us today. And believe it or not, Easter Sunday is next Sunday, and we are excited about that. We've got a great worship service planned for you guys, and we hope that you are already making plans to attend. But we want you to do something. We want you to invite friends to come with you, or neighbors, or coworkers, family members, whoever. And today, as you leave, you can pick up one of these cups. Uh, these are the cups kind of in the fashion of the hideaway cups or, you know, Eskimo Joe cups. I've heard that they're called Oklahoma China, but you can pick up one of these cups. It has our First Church logo on it, website, Love Jesus, Love Light Jesus. They look really cool, and actually you can get two cups. Take one for yourself, and then take one for a friend. And in that friend's cup, fill it up with candy. We've got little Easter invite cards. Fill it up with candy, give it to them, and invite them to attend one of our worship services next week. And if you're worshiping online, right now in the online hub, a link is being posted where you can invite people online to worship one of our servers in one of our services next week. So go ahead and share that link all across the country, and hopefully we'll have a great time together as one church celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. Now, we're going to have three services next week. You've already heard about that, 8 o'clock, 9.30, and 11 o'clock. So plan to attend one of those. But if you can, if it is at all possible for you, try to come to you that 8 o'clock or that 11 o'clock service. 9.30 is always packed, and we don't want anybody to feel uncomfortable with social distancing and all that kind of stuff if this room is too full for the 9.30 service. So try to come to the 8 o'clock service especially, but if you can come to one of those other services, it may make room for someone else to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ for the first time. So we challenge you to do just that. Uh, also, next Sunday, I've got a lot of announcements today because we've got a lot going on. Next Sunday, we're also having baptisms. We typically have baptisms on Easter Sunday. We, we do baptisms all the time but some people want to be baptized on Easter and what a special day to do it. And so following our last service at 11 o'clock, uh, we're going to have baptisms right here in this room. If you want to sign up to be a part of that, you can do so online or on our app. You can let one of our staff members know today or you can just show up next Sunday, but we would love to have a big group of people who are baptized into Christ for the first time next Sunday right after our last service. And so it's going to be a great weekend. I can't wait. I hope you're excited as well. But also the Sunday after Easter is going to be a big day as well because we have invited a guest speaker, a nationally known speaker, Dave Stone, who used to be the lead minister at First, I'm sorry, at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. He is going to be with us. And uh, if you've heard Dave preach before, you know he is awesome. He's a great speaker. He's a Christian author. And like like I said, he is a nationally known speaker. He retired from Southeast a few years ago, and now Kyle Ottoman is the lead minister there. But Dave is preaching all over the country now that he's retired, and we are fortunate to get him the weekend after Easter. And so we're going to be kicking off a new series on relationships. Dave's going to be preaching on parenting, and I know he's going to do a phenomenal job. And like I said, he is a Christian author, and we have one of his books available. If you want to pick one up, you can pick one up at our hub today for $5. These books normally sell for $16.99. That's their retail price. We got them at a discounted price for five bucks and we're selling them to you at cost. 
So if you want to pick up one of Dave's books, you can get it and bring it back with you on the Sunday after Easter. You can also buy one for a friend and you can invite them to come, but pick one up today at the Hub, but make sure that you are making plans to be here to hear Dave on the Sunday after Easter. And so like I said, a lot going on good stuff. God is at work, and I'm so glad you guys are here. But today, we are continuing our series, This is Jesus. And in this series, we are basically answering one question, and it's this, who is Jesus? Because there are a lot of misconceptions and false ideas floating around in our culture today about Jesus's identity. And so what we want to do is we want to talk about his true identity, who he really is, because Jesus came to make himself known. He wants to have a personal relationship with you. He wants you to know him for who he really is. And so, so far in this series, we've talked about how Jesus is love. That was the first week in the series. In week two, we talked about how Jesus is grace. Last week, Matt did a great job talking about how Jesus is powerful. And those three subjects are subjects we like to talk about. Those are the parts of Jesus' identity that are fun to talk about. I mean, we love to hear how Jesus is love because we all want to feel loved. And we love to talk about how Jesus is grace because we all want to be forgiven, right? And we love to talk about how Jesus is powerful because we need someone to empower us in life. But today, we're going to talk about a part of Jesus' identity that some people don't find as fun to talk about. It's not as exciting to talk about. It's not as attractive of a subject as the others. And it's this, that Jesus came to be a servant. In fact, Jesus is the servant of all. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 20. He says, the son of man, speaking of himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, Jesus says, I didn't come to be waited on. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. He came to lower himself, humble himself, in order to lift other people up, to serve as our ransom, to pay the price of our sins, to do something he didn't have to do for people who didn't deserve it because he loves us. Jesus came to be a servant. And the idea of being a servant in our culture is not one that we celebrate. It's not one that we find very attractive. I mean, nobody wants to be a servant. Our idea of greatness or success in our culture today is rising to the top. It's being at the top of the ladder, whatever that ladder is, your social ladder, your business or corporate ladder, whatever it is, you want to be at the very top. And the definition of success or greatness in our day and age is you want to have as many people under you as possible. You don't want people over you. You want people under you. Nobody wants to be a servant. And yet Jesus says, I came to be a servant. Jesus gave up his seat in heaven, lowered himself to come and serve you and me. And so when we think about that, it kind of blows our mind, but we understand that. I mean, somebody had to pay the price for our sins, and we couldn't do it. So we like the fact that Jesus came to serve us, but here's the kicker. In that same teaching, listen to what Jesus also says. He talks to us, and he says, whoever wants to become great among you, this is to you guys, this is to me, whoever wants to be great among you, great in God's eyes, must be your what? Servant. In other words, he came to be our servant, but he expects the same from us, that just as he served everyone, he expects us 
to serve the people around us as well. And that's not a very attractive concept. In fact, when we hear this part of the teaching, it's kind of like, I wish he hadn't said that. I saw a video a while back of some parents who had a newborn baby, and they already had two little kids, and these two little kids didn't know what the gender, what the sex was of their new sibling, and so they, they found out in the hospital room, and I want you to take a look at this little boy's reaction. Well, hi, buddy. Look on mommy's tummy. It's a new baby. It's a baby girl. Oh, man. I love that. You see, when Jesus says that greatness comes through service and his kingdom, that greatness comes through service, a lot of times that's our reaction. Oh, man. Did he have to say that? We don't really like that. That makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. But the life that Jesus is calling us to is not one where we promote ourselves, but it's one where we deny ourselves in order to serve God and lift others up to him. You see, in Jesus' kingdom, you descend into greatness. And I know that sounds backwards, it sounds crazy, it sounds odd, that's not how we're wired in the culture we live in today, but this is Jesus' kingdom, and he wants us to know this, this is important to him. And even though we struggle with this, it's still important, and it's something that we don't want to miss, because this is vital to his character, and is vital to who he's calling us to be. But we're not the first to ever struggle with this idea of serving and being a servant. In fact, Jesus' first disciples, his closest friends and followers, the 12, they struggled with it as well. They struggled with it the entire time that they knew Jesus. I mean, they struggled with it those three years that they were with him and they followed him. And they were even struggling with it on the very last night of his life before he goes to the cross. And so Jesus does something to teach them once again the importance of being a servant, and he does so in a very memorable way. And the passage we're going to look at today is found in John chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles or a Bible app on your phone or tablet, go ahead and look up John chapter 13. You can also follow along on our First Church app as well. That's where we're going to be today. And our passage today takes place in an upstairs room in the city of Jerusalem, during the Passover celebration. Now, Passover was the biggest holiday on the Jewish calendar. There was no bigger day on the calendar than Passover. And during the Passover celebration, Jews from all over the Mediterranean world would gather in the city of Jerusalem, the holy city, the city of God, in order to celebrate this special religious feast. And so to accommodate all the Jews that came to Jerusalem for this celebration, for this feast, I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands of Jews from all over the Mediterranean world would come for this celebration to accommodate all these extra visitors in Jerusalem, the local Jewish people who lived there, they would open up their homes. They would rent out their spare bedrooms and spare rooms in their homes so that their fellow Jewish countrymen could come and have a place to stay. There simply weren't enough hotels and inns for people to stay in during a feast like this. And so this served two purposes. One, it allowed for the local Jews to help out their fellow Jews from across the world, but it also allowed for the locals to earn some extra money because 
because they would rent out these rooms that they could earn some extra money. And that may sound odd to us, but it was, it was the custom of this day. I remember when we first were moving to Owasso, I told Allison as we were looking at houses that I wanted a house that had a guest room, a you know, set-aside guest room, because I knew we would have friends and family traveling from Kentucky. We were moving 800 miles away or so, and I didn't want them having to pay money to stay in a hotel. So I was like, let's make sure we get a house with a set guest room so that our friends and family can stay there. And I remember as we were looking at these houses, Allison was like, do we really need a guest room? Is that something we have to have? And I was like, yeah, because I don't want friends and family, you know, paying for a hotel. And Allison looked at me and said, well, how much are they going to pay us? And I'm like, they're not going to pay us. And she said, well, if they don't, they may stay forever. But we haven't had that problem yet. But still, it was the custom in this day and age for people to charge even their family members when they would come to town to stay in a spare room, spare bedroom, whatever. And everybody was fine with this. And when you did pay your fee, your rent fee, for, uh, for the time that you were there, everything was provided for you. Because, you see, if you were traveling from a distance, you couldn't bring food with you. There weren't restaurants around or anything like that. You couldn't bring all, everything that you needed with you on a long journey. So the family that you were renting the, the room from would provide everything for you. And apparently, as we put together the, the different gospel accounts of this moment that we're going to look at, Jesus has arranged for he and his disciples to celebrate the Passover meal in an upstairs room in a moderate Jerusalem home. And when they arrive, everything is prepared for them. The table is set for the Passover. Food is ready. The decor is all out. Everything is ready to go. All they have to do is come in and celebrate the Passover. And can you imagine being one of the disciples in this moment? You're with Jesus. I mean, the guy who you believe to be the Messiah, God's anointed one who has come to rescue your people. And Jesus has been talking for some time about how he's going to go to Jerusalem for one more time and there he's going to suffer and die, but he's going to rise again. But they think that's all figurative language. They think what Jesus is going to do is he's going to go and he's going to lead a military campaign and he's going to take over the Roman Empire and the Jews are going to be uh, the world leaders and all that kind of stuff. That's what they think is going to happen. And they know Jesus is going to Jerusalem to do do what he came to do. They're excited. They're pumped. And it's Passover time. There's no bigger day on their calendar. It's like Christmas and Easter put together. You know, they're excited and they get to celebrate the Passover in the city of God, in the holy city with Jesus, the one who they believe to be the Messiah sent from God. And can you imagine climbing the steps that ran along probably the outside of that house, those clay steps, going up to this upper room? You can smell the food that's already fixed. And you walk in, the table is set, the decor is out. You know this is going to be a Passover that you will never forget. And so everybody starts to take their spot around the table. And that's when things go a little sideways. Because, see, what you need to know is, again, when we put these gospel accounts together, on the way to Jerusalem, something happened. During their journey to Jerusalem, a fight broke out among the disciples, a dispute, an argument. And apparently this fight was ongoing. It kept popping up, and they were arguing about who is the most important, who is the greatest among them. See, they think Jesus is getting ready to come and start a new physical kingdom on earth, and so when he sits on a physical throne, who's going to be his vice president? Who's going to be his secretary of state? You know, who's going to be next in line? They're thinking about power and authority and control, and so they want to know among their group here, who's the greatest? Who's the most important? They start to argue and bicker 
and fight about it. And apparently, when they arrive in this upper room and they start eating the Passover meal, they're still fighting. Luke tells us this. Luke says in chapter 22, they started to argue among themselves about who was thought to be the greatest. This is while the meal is taking place. Now, this is kind of odd. I mean, this is the night that Jesus is going to be arrested. This is the night that he is going to be sent to the cross. And yet, less than 24 hours before he's arrested and sent to the cross, his disciples are having a verbal arm wrestling contest about who's most important. But I think this is going on for a couple of reasons. See, what you need to know is meals in the first century Jewish world were extremely important. They had great social significance. A meal, especially the evening meal, was a social event. And so when you would come together for a meal, especially the evening meal, it would last three to four hours sometimes. And this is where on a typical, during a typical evening meal, that the family would discuss all their business and the news of the day and all that stuff. And so your seat at the table mattered. See, this is how tables were set up in the Near Eastern world. This is three tables, actually, if you can picture that. We're looking at it from a bird's eye view. They would take three tables, make kind of a horseshoe shape, and then everybody would sit around the outside of the table, and servants would come in and serve you from the inside of this table. And so the seat of honor, the most important seat at the table, we would think would be like up here in the middle of the horseshoe, but that's not how it worked. The most important seat was right here, second to the end on the right-hand side if you're sitting around, around the table. This is where Jesus would have sat. Because he's the guy who they believe to be the Messiah. Typically, when the disciples and him would eat, this is where Jesus would sit. And the second most important seat was to Jesus' right. And then the third most important seat would have been to his left. And we assume that typically when the disciples would eat a meal, well, this would be probably John. John, the disciple Jesus loved. He seemed to be the closest to Jesus. And Peter would be right here. He's probably next. Then James, the brother John. And then the rest would follow, follow along in descending order. If you were having a family meal, the father, the patriarch, would sit here. And then everybody else would sit around the table in descending order. The person who sat over there, that's the foot of the table. You were the least important in the family or the least important in the group that you were eating in. That's how it worked. And here's the thing, they enter into this room and nobody wants to sit over there. Nobody wants to sit at the foot of the table. And what we find out when we piece together these stories is that Judas takes this seat. Judas Iscariot, the one who's going to betray Jesus. John's still here. Judas takes this seat where Peter normally is and apparently Peter's pretty ticked about it. Peter, again, when we piece this together, I think he goes over to the foot. He's so mad, he just goes to the end, end of the table and sits down. He's mad because Judas has taken his seat. And I know this may sound childish to fight over seats. I mean, it sounds like my kids, when we go visit, you know, Grammy and Granddaddy, they both want to sit beside Grammy and Granddaddy, so they fight about it, you know. It sounds like a bunch of little kids bickering. But again, there's something else at play here. Before you were supposed to eat your meal, you had to have your feet washed, this was the custom of their day. It was a social no-no. It was socially taboo to eat a meal without having your feet washed. And that was because your feet were extremely dirty. And when you would eat around a table, you didn't sit in chairs like we do. See, their tables were about this high off the ground, just about that high off the ground. And you would recline at the table. You would lay down and you would lean on your elbow or your fists, whatever. You would lean up against the table. That's how you would eat. That's how they would eat every meal. And so your feet 
were out. They weren't underneath the table. They were out. And imagine the primary mode of transportation in the state was walking. You walked everywhere and you walked on dirt and clay and a dusty road. So your feet would be caked with dirt and dust and all that kind of stuff. And feet are just nasty anyway. I mean, they just smell anyway, don't they? Especially when you sweat and all that stuff. But remember, guess who else traveled along these roads? animals and so you walked where the animals walked and so just imagine walking in the exhaust of these animals okay you know what I'm talking about your feet would have been nasty and dirty and so before you would eat a meal a servant would come and wash your feet if you didn't have a servant then a child would do it if there wasn't a child at the table then the person of least importance would do it and so this is what's going on Jesus and the disciples arrive in this upstairs room and Judas reads the room. He sees the bowl of water and the towel that the host family has left for them, but remember, they're renting a room. There's not a servant with them. The servants are downstairs serving the host family. Judas reads the room and he realizes the person of least importance is going to be the one to wash everyone's feet and it ain't gonna be him. So he takes one of the chief seats. Peter gets mad sits on the other side, and Peter says, I may be sitting in this seat, but I'm not doing it. And they start to eat, and their feet aren't washed, and this was unacceptable. They all knew it. This made them feel uncomfortable. They had never probably had a meal with their feet not washed. They knew this was wrong, and so they start to argue. Somebody better do it. Come on, somebody wash our feet. Come on, the food's getting cold. Let's go. Somebody wash the feet. James, unless you do it, you're the youngest of the group, you know. You're the youngest, you go do it. No, I'm not going to do it. Judas, you do it. You're always, you know, being a smart aleck. You go do it. No, Judas says, I'm not going to do it. Why don't we let Thomas do it? He's always questioning everything anyway. Why don't Peter do it? Peter's the loud mouth, and so they start to argue and bicker. And I think Jesus just kind of sits back and listens to them argue. And then he silences their verbal exchange with a visual response. John chapter 13, verse four. So he, Jesus, got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now, I want you to catch what's going on here. Jesus... The Son of God casually gets up, goes and picks up a bowl of water and a towel, wraps the towel around his waist, and begins to wash his disciples' feet. The Creator washes the feet of his creation. The one who crafted the universe is now scrubbing the dirt between the toes of men who were arguing and bickering, men who hadn't been listening to him, men who are rebellious, men who didn't deserve it. The creator, the king of kings, is acting like a mere servant. This blows me away. And I bet the disciples were in absolute shock they're probably thinking, this can't be happening. What's going on? There's no way this is actually happening. I know I'm not the least at the table, but Jesus definitely isn't. He shouldn't be the one to do this. And I think that's why Peter has the reaction that he has. When Jesus gets to, to Peter, look at how Peter responds. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, said to Jesus, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? If there's no way. And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand 
No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Peter's not having it. There's no way. And I bet Peter is probably thinking it should have been me. When no one else would have, I should have been the one to do it. Jesus is having to do this. I should have been the one to jump up and wash everybody else's feet. And probably the rest of the disciples are thinking the same thing. Listen to what Jesus says to Peter. He says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. In other words, Peter, you still don't get it. You still don't understand who I really am. You still don't understand my true identity. You still don't understand what it means to be part of my kingdom. You still don't get it. You still don't understand that my life is defined by the needs of others. My life is defined by the needs of others. I want you to wrap your minds around this. This is the last night of Jesus' life before he goes, before he's arrested and eventually goes to the cross. And what is Jesus doing? He's washing the feet of some disciples who didn't deserve it. He's serving. If this was the last night, if you knew tonight was the last night of your life, what would you be doing? If you knew for sure this was going to be your last night on earth, what would you be doing? I had to think about that. I don't know. I might go skydiving, Rocky Mountain climbing. I might go 2.7 seconds on a... Why is the bull named Full Manchu? I don't know. Anyway, but... No, I wouldn't do any of those things, really, but I know what I would not be thinking. I'm not thinking, I'm going to wash some people's feet. And yet, that's what Jesus is doing. It seems backwards. It seems opposite. It seems like something that shouldn't be happening, that God washes the feet of men. But this is Jesus. And the thing is, Jesus didn't do this for show. It's not like he was going to post this on social media later and, okay, guys, get together. Let me get a picture on my phone. Hashtag servant selfie. You know, it's not like that he was going to brag about it or anything. He was revealing his true character because washing the disciples' feet was a prelude to the cross. And here's the thing. Jesus says he expects the same attitude, the same heart from us. Look at what he tells his disciples. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. In other words, if Jesus is willing to serve anyone, we should be willing to serve anyone. He expects the same from us. Because in Jesus' kingdom, greatness doesn't come by stepping on people, but by serving people. And I think the disciples had forgotten this. And I wonder if we have as well. Have we missed this truth that greatness comes through service? I've talked before about how I'm fascinated by Snuggies. Anybody know what a Snuggie is? like a blanket that has like sleeves, you know, so you can sit there and still use your arms and all that. And I've often wondered who actually buys these things because I've seen them advertised more so years ago than recently, but still I've wondered who buys these things. And this past uh, soccer season, I was coaching Alex's, my son's soccer team, and we were playing in this tournament and it was like super cold. And on the sideline, there was a little kid sitting in a chair like this one and, um, and he was waiting to go in the game and his mom brought him over a Snuggie. 
And so he actually put this Snuggie on, not this one, but he put a Snuggie on. And I'm not even sure. I've never used one of these. Is there a head thing? Okay, here we go. I'm not going to put it on. I'm going to mess up my mic. But anyway, he was sitting here in this Snuggie, and he just looked very content because it's cold outside. And so then the time came for me to put him in the game. And so I'm like, okay, buddy, go in. And he looks at me, he goes, I'm good. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, it's time for you to go in the game. And he's like, no, no, I'm cold, I'm good, I'm right here. And I was just like, but your team needs you. You need to go in the game. He, and he was just like, I don't want to. And I had to talk him in to getting in the game. And he eventually went, but it took him a lot to put aside his Snuggie <laughs> and to get in the game. And you know, I wonder if we haven't in the church today dressed Jesus up in a Snuggie. I wonder if we haven't softened the edges of the cross to be something that Jesus never intended it to be because listen to what Jesus says. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, if anyone would, would come after me, follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. Jesus says, you want to follow me? You've got to deny yourself. And I wonder if in the church today, if we've created a brand of Christianity that Jesus wouldn't recognize, where we come together, and maybe we don't sit in lawn chairs like this, but we sit in pews, and we get comfortable, and we enjoy the worship service, and we laugh at the preacher's bad jokes and all that kind of stuff. And we hear God's word tell us we need to get out and change the world and serve people and wash people's feet. And we're like, no, we're good. We're good. We're comfortable right here. It's fine. I'm just going to come to church on Sundays to get my $3 worth of God and go home. I'm good. And Jesus says, I don't recognize that church. It's March Madness right now, and I love March Madness. I love basketball, especially college basketball. It really stinks that Kentucky isn't in the tournament. That hasn't been fun, but still, uh, I still love to watch basketball. I watched it yesterday and whatever, and I'll watch it again today. But because I am a big Kentucky basketball fan, I have this license plate on the back of my, license plate frame on the back of my car. And the reason why this plate is now off of my car is because during March Madness, people around here like to give me a hard time. And so I went to my car the other day and this is what I saw. I saw a license plate that said Duke Blue Devils. And if you know anything about the Kentucky-Duke rivalry, you know, I mean, this is like, this is, these, are, these are fighting words right here, okay? This is really bad. And so I was walking out of a restaurant with some staff members and I noticed this plate and I stopped. I mean, I like froze in my tracks. And I was like, that's not my car. There's no way that's my car. There's no, and sure enough, it was. Somewhere along the way, one of our staff members had taken my Kentucky plate off and had replaced it with this. But don't worry, it is nothing that a little blue tape won't fix. Do you see this? You can tape it up. You can't spell Duke without UK. So anyway, uh, that's what I did until I got my Kentucky plate back. Now, here's the thing. People have played jokes on me like this before, but we recently installed security cameras uh, here at our church all around our building and our parking lot. And so here's a still clip of our parking lot camera. My car is parked over here, and this figure right here, which you can't see, is the person who replaced my license plate. Now, he tried to be slick, because he tried to avoid the cameras. He knew where the cameras were, but 
we got him. And I could blow this up right now and you could see exactly who this staff member is and I could let you know, but I'm not going to do that because I'm just not a petty person, you know, and I don't like to get revenge or anything like that. So staff member, you right here, I know who you are, okay? I just want to let you know. Now, on a separate note, I do like to sometimes acknowledge some of the work that our staff does here. And so I'm not sure if you guys know Jacob Zlonke. He is, uh, I guess it works up at our nest. He's our tech director, and he does a phenomenal job running our sound and all that equipment up there in our sound booth. And one other talent that he has is changing out license plate frames, okay? Just want to let you know that. So if you ever need need somebody to do that, he'll do it for you. And by the way, we snuck this in here. He had no idea I was going to do this. Normally, he runs through the slides and we snuck that in there this morning. So he did not know I was going to do it. Anyway, but back to my point that I was making. When I walked out to my car and I saw that Duke Blue Devils license plate, I thought, that's not my car. And I wonder if sometimes if Jesus ever looks at the modern day church in our American culture, says, that's not my church. My followers serve. My followers wash feet. My followers are willing to lower themselves to lift others up to me. My followers don't live for this world. My followers live for eternity. It's not my church. My followers don't just come and sit in Snuggies. My followers, they're the ones who pick up towels. And they go out and they serve. That's Jesus. And that's who Jesus calls us to be as well. And so let me ask you the question, who are you serving? Jesus, he was able to serve his disciples that night because of this reason. Look at what John tells us. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist. Why was Jesus able to do this? Why was the king of kings able to act like a mere servant? Because he was totally and completely secure in his relationship with his heavenly father. He knew where he came from. He knew where he was going. And he knew the stuff that this world celebrates, the stuff this world chases after, pursues, that stuff didn't matter. The only thing that mattered was his relationship with God, and he wanted to love those who his father loved. See, I think Jesus is telling us two key principles here, and they're these. First of all, only when we die to self will we really live. You will never live, fully live, just living for yourself. That's why I think baptism is so cool, because in baptism, we see the imagery of dying to self. The old person stands in the water, goes down, dies to self, and comes back up a new life. We had a handful of baptisms happen here this past Wednesday night, some students in our student ministry and I didn't get to, it was cool, I didn't get to actually like see it, but my small group was meeting in a room that backs up to our auditorium here, and we knew when everyone was baptized because we could hear the cheers and the screams, the hoots and the hollers, ho hollering from the students who were in the room. It was crazy to listen. They shook our room, it was so loud, because it's a celebration. Why do we celebrate dying to self? Because we know this life that we've inherited from the world, it's not really living. We're living for something greater. But then also Jesus teaches us only when we die to self will we, will we be able to give life away. See, that's what we're called to do. We're not here to keep this life to ourselves. We're here to give life away. And the only way that we are going to change the world 
It's by serving people in love. You see, we don't guilt people into following Jesus. Some churches try that. We don't. We can't force people to follow Jesus. We don't shame people into following Jesus. We love people into following Jesus. And when we do that, we change the world. Jesus never intended on changing the world through military strength or earthly power structures or even politics. Jesus, his plan was to change the world by loving people, by washing people's feet, one person at a time. What would our world look like if everybody who claimed to follow Jesus threw away their Snuggies and picked up a towel? I'll tell you what would happen. We'd bring heaven to earth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this moment we've had to open up your word and study it and look at this example from your son. I just pray that we will be a people who follow his example, that are willing to wash people's feet, that are willing to humble ourselves so we can lift people up to you. May that be our heart. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.